Listener Production. G'day, it is Antoinette Latouf here. Welcome to our summer series of The Weekend Briefing, and it features some of yours and our favourite interviews over the year. And in today's episode, Jamila Rizvi speaks to Australian comedian Dilrock Jaisina, where he explains how he made the switch from working as an accountant at a big four to becoming a stand-up comedian. Hello, Dilrook, and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thank you so much. I love technology where we're able to be in different parts of the world and still be able to connect and talk about the weekend. So tell me about extroversion. When you think about being an extrovert, how does that mean that you show up in the world? Are you one of those people who is like, yep, I say yes to every event, every party. I'm always the person that's just going out all the time, talking to people. Or does extroversion look different for you? No, in my 20s, absolutely. I felt like my uh, self-esteem was so low that I couldn't find that drive and uh, enthusiasm for my confidence from within. So I needed that external validation. And whether that was trying to be the life of the party or, you know, constantly, you know, spreading myself thin, desperately trying to fit in. Because as someone who came from Sri Lanka, moved to Australia, you know, I, I confused fitting in with wanting to belong when clearly I just wanted to feel like, you know, this I'm part of this this world. Uh, I was doing, you know, molding myself into a version that I thought other people wanted me to be rather than actually just being my authentic self and letting people who, you know, gel with that, you know, uh, come to me. So I think that extroversion was something that was really just masking a lack of confidence. And maybe thanks to therapy, uh, what I've realized is that that energy spent trying to get that external validation, I'm usually now trying to use up that energy to just, you know, do my own thing or be there for the people that are closer to me and matter to me more, you know? It's obviously a good quality to have as a stand-up comedian, meaning that you are, you know, um, how do you say, fueled by a, a crowd. Uh, that's still true for me. And I, and even when I'm writing my new material, I'm much funnier when I have the pressure of a live audience in front of me. I, I come up with punchlines quicker than if I'm sitting here in my hotel room with my notepad. You know, it just doesn't tap into that. So I think I'm still an extrovert, but I'll admit at the end of the night, that oh, one of my favorite things in the morning is to wake up you know, do my journaling and all of that and then just go and have a coffee and do a Sudoku or something like that. Like I've, I'm embracing my retirement now. <laughs> Tell me about those first few weeks or, or months after moving to Australia. You moved to Melbourne to go to university. Mm. You mentioned that you weren't a particularly confident person at that time in your life. So tell me, tell me about what that was like coming onto campus and not feeling like you belonged. Yeah, well, I think I was used to it, though, Jim, because I grew up in a Muslim house as a non-Muslim. So I don't know if you know my background. My mom is Muslim and uh, my dad was Buddhist and my Buddhist dad and Muslim mom sent me to a Catholic school. Uh, and we grew up in mom's uh, side of the family because dad worked overseas. My parents are still together, but, um, you know, dad was uh, worked overseas. So we grew up in mom's family. So there were 14 people in the one house, one big house. And my brother and I were the only non-Muslim. And then I'd go to the Catholic school where, the you know, there was only like two or four non-Catholics in the whole classroom. And then I'd come to Australia and I'm, you know, minority again. Because I'm like, you know what, I'm used to this because I've been a minority in my own house. So that feeling of being a fish out of water, I guess I was just kind of used to it in a way. I didn't know. This is all in hindsight, by the way. When you're going through it, you're just kind of going through the motions. Um, looking back, I realized, yeah, you know, uh, I really wanted to find my tribe and fit in. But then what we discovered is that I have a weird ability to 
finish pints of beer quicker than most people. Uh, I was able to finish a, a pint in like four seconds and a jug, a whole jug of beer I did once in 11 seconds. Yeah, we don't condone. And in fact, if you want the full story, uh, I've been sober now six and a half years. And there's a reason why someone has to quit drinking is because it went too far. Uh, so, you know, this is not necessarily a celebration of the situation. It's just, uh, you know, giving you my origin story, I guess. So I, I, I went from no one knowing me to the following week, I'd be at a different pub that's out, not even near uni, and someone comes up to me and is like, hey, are you that bloke who can, Sri Lankan bloke that can scull pints? Can you scull my pint? And was like buying me drinks just to watch me like some sort of circus performer. And obviously being a 19-year-old who's, you know, desperate to try and find, you know, some sort of validation, I was like, oh, this is it. This is my identity. And it became such a big part of my, um, you know, persona. Uh, and, you know, when I quit drinking years later, 12 years later, whatever it was, I was quite scared because I thought this is such a big part of me. Uh, I don't know who I am when I'm not the big booze hound, you know? And obviously thanks to therapy and stuff like that, I was able to unlock and find my worth that isn't linked to anything I do and more like as in, in terms of this, oh, it's not because I'm a big a drinker. It's not because I'm a comedian. It's just like people like you just because you, you know, have these other qualities. So just hang on to those. Well, there was a, a really distinct period in Australian history that probably started to dissipate only like five to 10 years ago, right? Where the message to any migrant community was that your job is to assimilate. Uh-huh. Yeah. Like let go of what you what you were and what you had before. You're you're doing Australian now. Yeah. And I think that element of and I felt like I think I was always a teacher's pet in some form or the other. Like I always wanted to align myself with the, you know, the establishment. And so whether it was studying hard to get fed, you know, to, to to be recognized as the top person in the classroom or whatever. I think a version of that started happening in Australia where I was like, not only am I gonna be an immigrant, I'm gonna be the best immigrant ever. I'm gonna yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna sink, you know, in the in the words of the locals, I'm gonna sink piss and go to the footy and, you know, just uh talk I literally had VB thongs at one point. <laughs> like I just embraced the bogan. I was a brown bogan, a brogan. And I just basically just, you know, and it was fun. I'm not going to lie. Like there's elements of the, the the boozy days that that really served me well because it did break me out of my comfort zone. It did sort of show me that I have a, a lighter side to me, a sillier side to me that was being kind of swept away because of my accounting background and things like that. Um, and that's those things are what led me to, you know, doing what I do now, which is a dream job, you know. So I don't completely have regret about it. However, I kind of wish I had a better handbrake to know when to pull, pull the handbrake uh, before things got you know, deadly. So I am guessing you did not move to Australia to attend university in order to become a comedian. I'm guessing that was not plan A. Tell me what the original plan was and how that ended up in comedy. My dad, yeah, my dad didn't delay his retirement by four years just so that I can be a, an open mic comedian. Uh, no, it was to become an accountant. Like, so I, uh, I was top, you know, I had top grades in Sri Lanka in high school. And, um, you know, I, it, it's people ask me why I came to Australia. And the truth is actually quite quite sad, which is that the um, the applications for UK and US, I had forgotten to apply in time. So I missed the deadline. And and so the one that was left was Australia. I'm like, well, I guess I'll go to Australia. And this is, I feel kind of stupid because I genuinely did have top grades. So it was like, I, I had the pick of the bunch and my dad, you know, God bless him, was willing to, um, you know, pay for my education. So I really had was quite privileged in that point to be able to to, to decide which school I'm going to go to because I had the grades as well as the finances. Uh, but because I'm 
shit at admin. <laughs> I just forgot to apply. And so Australia Australia benefited from that. I feel like my presence was my present to this country. <laughs> and I I basically, but then once I came in here, I like I said, I got into, uh, you know, whole identity of being the, the party boy on campus. And, um, and basically my grades suffered. However, because I had such big leadership roles in Melbourne Uni, one of the biggest universities, I was the uh, the president of the Commerce Student, so- Student Society, whilst I was tenuously being the head, like the whole head of the whole student unions, clubs and societies officer. So these are two positions of leadership that is rarely held at the same time, never held at the same time, let alone by an international student, because it's it's voted by the student population. So if you're an international student, you just don't know that many people. So the fact that I was able to amass this amount of following was something that I think any employer was quite impressed by. And so I then basically got quite a few cool job opportunities at the big four accounting firms. Uh, And I would interview well. That's the other thing, Jam, is because I think there's this um, uh, racism worked in my favor. I would come in. So I think the expectation of, you know, Dilruk Jaisinger from Sri Lanka, he's only been in the country two years, was such a different view to what I would come to the table and make jokes and stuff like that. Like, I don't think I was any funnier or more, like, you know, charismatic than any of the other applications, applicants, but their expectation of me was so low, I just looked like a rock star. So it was kind of like the Susan Boyle effect, you know, when she walked on, everyone just kind of went, oh, hang on, what's happening here? And then this incredible voice came out. That was me in the accounting job interviews that I ended up getting, uh, I think there were two big four accounting firms that wanted me. I went with uh, KPMG. But what happened is between the interviews, the financial crisis hit. And uh, and once I started working as a graduate, they started to crunch down on, you know, um, their KPIs and things like that. And I was definitely not hitting the mark because I was, I'm someone who is, you know, who again, thrives on human interaction. And I was working as a tax agent, you know, so it was like just four big books of tax legislation that I had to flip through. And I was just so like, I found it really hard to apply myself. And so thankfully they did fire me uh, six months in. They said, look, we're not going to give you pass your probation. They said uh, we wanted to keep you around because you had such a good attitude and a great team building, uh, uh, good for morale, uh, but you'll be doing something you're not suited for, which hurt at the time, obviously, because it was, again, talk about identity shift. Like I'd, I'd studied so hard as a kid in Sri Lanka in high school to get a good degree, to get a good job, to get a good you know position, to get money, to then buy things I wanted. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I'm like being told that I've been going down the wrong path it was a scary moment. But that actually is what I used to kind of reverse engineer going, okay, I did accounting purely for money. What if I had all the money in the world? What would I spend my time doing? And I was like, well, I always wanted to try stand-up comedy. And I thought I'll give that a crack. And I was scared though, because I thought I just quote unquote failed at accounting. And if I tried stand-up and I'm bad at that little dream that I hung on to since I was 12. I'm like, oh, I'm going to be like, I would have failed at two things. So I, I kind of like delayed my first ever gig because it's like, I was just like, oh, if I don't try it, then I can, can't fail. But then I think the pain of never trying it was too hard. So I just gave it a crack. And then turns out I was terrible at it. <laughs> I just bombed. My first gig was awful. But I don't think I, it was a game changing moment because I had never done anything that I'd enjoyed the process of. Like everything else was to try and get like a future result. Whereas with stand up, I found no matter how bad I went, I just loved everything leading up to it. And the failure was a good failure. It was almost like, oh, this is painful to bomb, but I'd rather 
be a bad comedian that's trying to be better than be an accountant that's nailing it because I didn't care about it, you know? I started working for a smaller accounting firm and this, I went and told my boss I want one day off a week to to commit to comedy and he couldn't understand why I'd sacrifice a day's pay to do something that doesn't pay any money. And plus it's at nighttime. And I was like, don't, don't worry about it. It's an apprenticeship. It makes sense in my head. And then, you know, fast forward, uh, I think it was six, seven years later that that same boss is now my accountant. <laughs> so it's come for... <laughs> It's gone full circle. I have so many questions. And the first one is, how did your parents react? Because you and I have a somewhat similar experience of um, parents culturally. And if there's something I know for sure about subcontinent parents, it's that the dream is of being an accountant at the big four. So, well, that or a doctor. Yeah, exactly. How could you give that up? And what did that mean to them for you to give that up? Look, I think any parent, at least my parents, definitely just wanted to know that I'm going to be okay once they go, you know, once they're not around. And it's hard to show evidence of how an open mic, you know, comedian can make this come good. So I think, and especially because, you know, I have this prestigious degree, you know, and it's like, what do you mean you're not going to use it? Instead, you're going to do this. I'm like... I just knew that deep down in my gut there was something saying that I was down the wrong path and, and I just had to commit to it. And and um, after they knew that I wasn't going to stop, essentially, like, there was one day I think dad was a bit like, he's like, hey, are you looking for any, you know, accounting, uh, alternative accounting jobs? I'm like, no, remember the comedy thing that I'm going to commit to? He's like, uh, I thought that was like a hobby. I'm like, no, 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 this is like where my head's at. And he was obviously a bit rattled by it. But then the next day onwards, he was just like, you know what, this is what he's going to do. I'm just going to support him. And so literally every day for the last 30 years of doing comedy he would text me on my whatsapp the whatsapp family group going hey how was last night's gig so i'm currently like touring in perth and he he's like oh how was the second show tonight like you know did you change the material he's so involved and i have an amazon special on, on amazon prime sorry and um my mom she she likes that i do stand up but she's being you know muslim and not drinking and you know doesn't swear she's uncomfortable with me swearing so she watches my stand up on mute and I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, it looks like you're having fun. So I enjoy looking at that. And I was like, that is so sweet. My, my, my dad has watched the Amazon thing 23 times now. And at the end of every time, he just he cries. He absolutely bawls his eyes out. Uh, you know, he's like, oh, I, sh- I wasted all that money on his accounting degree. <laughs> Look, this is what he's done. No, no, he cries because he's proud because it shows up, you know, written and performed by Duruk Jaising. And, and that's a big, um, you know, he's really supportive. And it's, it's you know, not. Now, now they're 100% on board. I mean, they were 100% on board even before things came together. You know, it was just, just a little brief pocket at the start where they were just scared for me going, how is... Because I wasn't good at it. Like, that's the thing that people don't understand is that that I all I had going for me is um, that I loved the game. I loved getting to do comedy. And it was combined with this uh, relentless knowledge that I was just going to keep doing that regardless of whether money came in or not. This is all I'm going to do. I have to ask... You end up on the cast of Utopia on the ABC. It's about the public service. It's about life in a government department. But often all those kind of big offices can be a bit the same, right, with the kind of bureaucratic paperworky kind of thing. Was there anything that you took from your time at KPMG into the role on Utopia? 
Absolutely. I mean, for starters, my ability to tie my own tie. That seems to be something that a lot of a lot of actors don't really have the skills in and they need wardrobe to help them with. Whereas I'm like, yeah, this is what I used to do. Yeah, yeah. I'm, if you watch the show, you'll notice I'm the only one with the dimple in the ties. <laughs> like, you know, I bring some class to that role. I think my character on Utopia, Ash, he's a lot more uh, enthusiastic and he loves his job a lot more than I did. So I, I, I think the... Uh, if I was to try and tap into my version of that role, like real life, I, I would be more dead in the eyes, whereas he thinks it's probably the coolest thing in the world that he gets to do this. So it actually is, I tap into my, how I feel about stand-up is how I think the character feels about his job. So that that's probably where I draw from real life, not the accounting side of things. You've had some huge success as a stand-up comic, but also as an actor and as a podcaster. Earlier, you said you'd given up drinking maybe five years ago. Tell me about what led to that decision and and how that's changed your work. Well, yeah, it's been six years since I quit. And uh, what led to it was basically I just lost control. So it was something that, you know, I misunderstood as thinking that this is the only reason people like me because of what happened at uni. I'm like, oh, this is where I got all my friends and, you know, having girls who are like way above my league talking to me and things like that. So all these things that as a teenager you think are important. I just think I lacked a lot of purpose, you know what I mean? I just didn't know what I really wanted to do with my life. And so when that that's a very scary existential thought. And I guess I was just masking that by trying to bury the, the fact that if I was, you know, uh, obnoxious, then people can't say you're a, a scared little boy, you know? But the truth was, that's what it was. It was just this lack of confidence because I used to be a lot of uh, heavier, I used to be teased about my weight and things like that. So I think it was basically a way for me to try and tap into what I thought was my authentic self because I was I was someone deep down who wanted to be to, to embrace life and have fun but I was down this path of sitting at a desk job and studying hard so it was this I don't know it was almost like I had to come out as someone who is a, a goofball you know and just learning to learn to lean into that self without trying to be cool or trying to be like conservative or whatever and the drinking just got gross and gross like I was towards the end there without necessarily going too deep into it I would fall asleep with a bottle of wine in my hand like in bed you know and I'm like hang on that this is like I'd wake up and I've spilt the wine and it's just all over the mattress so then I flip the mattress over and then two weeks later I do it again with beer and then I'm like well I can't fit flip the mattress anymore I just have to buy a new mattress and I'm like what is happening here this is like you know because it's all these little things when you're in uni were things that you can kind of laugh at and call larrikin behavior but then suddenly I'm like 32 and I'm still doing this and and now especially with comedy being something that you know I really cared more about and I was realizing because I never drank before my performances because um, I always wanted to be clear-headed when I when I gigged after the show though I would completely go off the rails and then yeah of course inevitably things like hangovers and all that would affect my performances as well so I just realized that this isn't something that I can manage like it's a it was you know I'm either in or out there's no middle ground for me with alcohol because it was a it was a fantastic servant when it was serving me but a terrible master because once it took over my life it's that's when I just completely had to that's you know I went into a very dark place and, you know, thanks to therapy and all of that, I had to come out of it, um, you know, it, but it took a while. And, you know, it's definitely one of the hardest, thing, hardest things I've had to do is A, just take accountability for how, you know, gross I was becoming, but also at the same time recognizing that 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 can be a line in the sand and I can learn to forgive myself and try and, you know, 
through actions, not just with words, actually show that I've truly, you know, regret what I, you know, how, how, I, how I started to transform and become someone who's hopefully better for the rest of the life. Good on you. That is incredible. I really appreciate the fact that you've mentioned that therapy helps in those situations mm. because it can be easy to forget how intertwined physical and mental health challenges are. The fact that one mm-hmm. impacts the other and the other way around. Yeah. And you usually don't have challenges in one of those areas and not in the other because they are so intertwined. Well, Jam, I lost like, I think it was 2018, I lost like 30 kilos or so. And people were asking me how, what did I do to lose it? And I always say I started seeing a therapist, which is the truth, because it's the, it's really that uh, they're like, no, no, but what did you do? I'm like, yeah, I can tell you, but it's really not going to work unless you really know why you, you know, your behavior, you understand your own behaviors. And it's, I said it uh, jokingly that it's like, uh, you know, uh, if someone says, hey, this is a really delicious cake, what's the recipe? You're like, oh, I cleaned my oven. And you're like, yeah, but okay, what's the actual ingredients? I'm like, it doesn't matter what the ingredients are. If your oven's dirty, then you're not going to get a good cake, you know? So f- fix the oven first, and then you can decide how you want to bake your cake. Dilruk, it has been a genuine joy chatting with you. Before you go, though, I want to ask about your new stand-up show, Heartstopper. Mm. Tell us about it. Well, Heartstopper has two meanings. One, because, you know, by Indian heritage, I thought I'll lean into that because Rook means, uh, the name Dilruk, Rook would mean stop and Dil would mean heart. So that's where Heartstopper comes from. But then it also is pretty apt considering the fact that in April last year I had a proper heart attack. And uh, I was like, yep, all right, well, I guess this is fate. Because I made a joke about the Heartstopper and uh, having high cholesterol in the previous year. And then one year later, I had a heart attack. So I almost like predicted my own fate. And, uh, you know, it's it's obviously... Uh, it's a, it, it is definitely the one of the more scary things that has happened to me in my life. I'm glad if I've found a way to to find the humor in it and be able to, you know, talk about what happened. Because, you know, the reason I lent into it, I was still umming and ahhing about whether I should talk about it because I felt like I wasn't sure if I'd fully healed from the experience because my friend Cal, Cal Wilson, the comedian, she said, you know, people want to see your scars, not your wounds. And I I think about that a lot, which is true. Like in a public forum, scars have a real great story to tell. And there's a lot of pride almost in the the fact that you got through it and your scars show a, a, a fuller picture of who you are. Whereas a wound, on the other hand, really needs to be kind of like, I don't know, I think shared with professionals and maybe close friends. <laughs> like, don't publicly just bleed in, in public. So I was really scared about being that version of, you know, a wounded person telling the story because I don't know if I'd healed correctly. But I knew I, I was going to get there and um, mainly because I think there's a lot of stuff that I did not know, especially being 37 at the time. I didn't really think that this was on the cards for me. 37, having lost a lot of weight, having run a marathon, like point out that it was cholesterol and you know spoiler as well from the show a big part of it is because uh, uh, subcontinental people we have thinner arteries you know compared to white people I mean is there no end to white privilege seriously there's privilege on on the inside and the outside right like for brown people our blood supply to heart is just like our job opportunities very limited you know so it's it's uh and so those are the things the elements of it that i felt not necessarily a responsibility i don't ever like to put that pressure on myself because you know if there's anything that 
jeopardizes my mental health, it's not worth the price. So I always make sure, is, am I still okay? Am I still okay? Am I still able to do this? And if I am able to then somehow find the capacity to look out for to myself and still share my story, then I might as well because there are, you know, I am lucky enough that people um, might hear it and may, you know, I'm pretty proud of like of all the things that's happened in my career. One of the biggest things I'm proud of is the, you know, the podcast I do, Fitbit, which talks about health and well-being. The number of people that have messaged us saying that they've, you know, quit drinking because of us talking about it. They've, you know, lost weight or they've just chosen to eat healthier, you know, like little things like that to me mean more than any of these um, the other sort of artificial ones, because that's when you really kind of feel like you're leaving Earth a better place than it was when you got here, you know? Dilruk, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. My absolute pleasure, Jam. Thanks so much for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chat between Jamila and Dilruk. That is it for this week. Thank you so much for being with us and tuning in. It is always a pleasure to have you. And if you want more of the weekend briefing, you can find us on the listener app. You can download the listener app in the app store and you can follow us there. Otherwise, follow or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. And why not give us a rating and a review for this fabulous interview? And just an FYI, you can review and rate every episode. We love to hear from you. Stay safe, everyone. Listener.